0: and welcome back to the Outbreak Podcast, an outlet for discussing creativity and the great beyond. We also discuss everything from gaming to film to the dark corners of the internet. I'm your host on this wild ride, William Key. Now, we have a pretty jam-packed show today. We have another segment of what's in the letterbox at the end. I've got my shoutouts. A couple of interesting news stories that came out this week. But first, Before I started this podcast, some breaking news actually just came in. Now, keep in mind, this is being recorded on Saturday the 31st. This is Halloween. Ooh, spooky. But this is actually some pretty serious breaking news. So let's all get serious for a second. Now, as of this morning, we just found out that Sir Sean Connery, uh, the actor well-known for his portrayal of James Bond, I believe he was the first James Bond has passed away at the age of 90, according to his family. The Scottish actor was best known for his portrayal of James Bond being the first to bring the role to the big screen and appearing in seven of the spy thrillers. Sir Sean died peacefully in his sleep while in the Bahamas, having been unwell for some time, according to his son Jason. Jason says that his father had many of his family who could be in the Bahamas around him when he died overnight in Nassau. He said... We are all working at understanding this huge event as it only happened so recently, even though my dad has been unwell for some time. A sad day for all who knew and loved my dad and a sad loss for all people around the world who enjoyed the wonderful gift he had as an actor. Sir Sean, from Fountainbridge in Edinburgh, first played James Bond in Doctor No in 1962 and went on to appear in five other official films and the unofficial Never Say Never Again in 1983. Again, he was largely regarded as the best actor to have played 007 in the Long running franchise. He is also known for his role as Indiana Jones's father in The Last Crusade and for his role in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So it's a sad day, uh, and also the Bond producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli said that they were devastated by the news of his death. They said he was and shall always be remembered as the original James Bond, whose indelible entrance into cinema history began when he announced those unforgettable words, the names Bond. James Bond. He revolutionized the world with his gritty and witty portrayal of the sexy and charismatic secret agent. He is undoubtedly largely responsible for the success of the film series, and we shall be forever forever grateful to him. So I'll go over some of the films that he starred in. James Bond films. He was in Doctor No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever, and Never Say Never Again. So it's a sad day for the James Bond community. Uh, losing... Sean Connery, as well as the acting world, he lived to the age of ninety, um, and he had been retired from acting for some time. So he will be missed dearly. Now, the next story I wanted to discuss is about some recent casting in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We all know that Marvel is working on a new slew of television shows for Disney Plus. They had announced shows like Falcon and Winter Soldier, WandaVision, Loki. Uh, Hawkeye. These were all shows that were slated for the beginning of Phase 4, but of course, COVID hit. Everything's been delayed. But they had also taken to announcing another slew of Marvel shows, including such like Miss Marvel, She-Hulk, as well as this one, Moon Knight. We've been waiting hand and foot to see what the casting choices were going to be for some of these characters. We have uh, unconfirmed reports for who She-Hulk is going to be playing. We have a confirmed case for Miss Marvel, but this week, we finally found out who's going to be playing Mark Spector, a.k.a. the Moon Knight for the Disney Plus show, and they've tapped Oscar Isaac. Now, Oscar Isaac hasn't officially confirmed it himself, but it seems as though it's leaning this way. Now, Oscar Isaac is huge for Disney because he's already played in Star Wars. He was in the three big recent Star Wars films as Poe Dameron. He has also um, voiced the um, Spider-Man 2099 in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Not only that, he's played Apocalypse and X-Men Apocalypse. So he's well-versed in comic and sci-fi films. So tapping him to play Moon Knight seems to make the most sense. I've only read one Moon Knight comic um, I'm familiar with the character a little bit. I know that he is basically considered Marvel's version of Batman, but I feel like he's got a, a couple more layers there that um make him more unique to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, including the fact that his character has dissociative identity disorder as well as um, some of his unique abilities that make him that set him apart from Batman. The only reason why they are, tend to be compared is because I guess of their look, their look is very similar. And I guess the, the characters that come into them are very similar as well. So the fact that they chose Oscar Isaac to play this role suggests that a big name actor like him will eventually bring the character to the films. Now, there's been a couple of different ways they could do this. They could have him tied with Mahershala Ali's version of Blade. The two of them can fight alongside each other. He's also been associated with the Avengers. He's been associated with Doctor Strange. There's several different ways that this character could come to the films, but they're giving him his chance in an eight-episode series on Disney+. Plus. Just like other characters like She-Hulk and Miss Marvel, this gives plenty of these characters time to get their footing in the universe and eventually bring them over to the films later on. Next up. I've got an interesting story coming to us from Screen Rant. Bethesda producer Todd Howard had recently stated in an interview that he finds it would be hard to imagine the next Elder Scrolls game becoming permanently Xbox exclusive. This is despite the fact that more recently, back in September, I believe, Microsoft purchased the rights to ZeniMax Media, who is the parent company of Bethesda, as well as other various developers under its purview. Now... Microsoft does have a history of releasing some of their games on both PlayStation and Nintendo consoles. Think about Skyrim. It's basically been ported to everywhere. It's it's hard enough it hasn't even been ported to the phone yet. I'm surprised. But they've already announced that there's two Bethesda titles that will be headed to PlayStation. PlayStation which include Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo. Now, these upcoming franchis- franchises had pre-existing deals with Sony to release exclusively on PlayStation in the console place. So, Microsoft and Bethesda are holding up that end of the deal. In this interview with GameIndustry.biz, the James Batchelor, who's the reporter, interviewed Todd Howard, who's the producer of Bethesda. He expressed surprise at the situation that was going forward with Microsoft and agreed with James that... It would be hard to imagine Elder Scrolls only being on the Xbox. So he said, I was I was naively surprised at how big it landed and what it meant in the larger context of games. But I was happy with the feedback we saw. A lot of people saw it as a big positive thing the way we do. It is a big positive thing in Microsoft's favor because I think that the purchase of ZeniMax which came a day before pre-orders for the Xbox open it swayed people towards Microsoft and that's exactly what people wanted, was to have those pre-orders. Their numbers jacked up as soon as they heard that Microsoft had purchased ZeniMax, because the initial thought was, okay, I want to play games like like uh, Elder Scrolls Fallout on on the Xbox. And the fact that it's tied to PC, well, the PC players will also get it first, right? Part of that lack of surprise may be due to how close Xbox and Bethesda have worked in the past, especially when it comes to the Elder Scrolls. Howard even mentioned it himself. If you look at every Elder Scrolls game, there has been some exclusivity on Xbox or with Microsoft. We've partnered with every game. Skyrim had exclusive DLC on Xbox for a while, but eventually everything just got ported to the other consoles. Now I think the Switch has a version of Skyrim as well. While some are quick to see Todd Howard's statement as hard to imagine as an Xbox exclusive franchise as some sort of proof that it will release elsewhere, it's also as easy to see the opposite. That's according to ScreenRant.com's article that is talking about this. And yeah, I honestly, I still think that, and and this goes back to comments that were made about the official buyout first, that they were going to assess each title on a case-by-case basis. For something as big as ZeniMax, who owns a lot of properties that are huge in the gaming world, it would make sense for Xbox to pull them in exclusively and only at Xbox and PC. But for other people who want to be able to play those games but can't afford to buy two different consoles, well, they're either going to have to make the hard choice of buying the Xbox first or just not playing the game at all. And I don't think that's fair to the majority of gamers out there. I think what they should do is... Keep, still keep it as a timed exclusive deal. That means that Xbox players will get the chance to play the game first, maybe for the first six months to a year, and then eventually the games will get ported to other consoles, whether it be with DLC or as a complete edition. We shouldn't be cutting off these specific titles from the other consoles. I think everybody should be given the chance to play these games in their own time. Now, That's all I have to say about that article. Let's get on to our next story. There is a new research study that has found that movies focused on mental health tend to receive better reviews and pull in more money at the box office. This new study comes from researchers at Stanford University, Yale University, and the University of Connecticut, published by research distributor MedRxiv, that surveyed 2,043 movies released between the years 1977 and 2019, with plots that involved stories of mental illness and found that their box office returns were higher than average in at least 34 years during that period. As for critical appreciation, those movies racked up about 15.2% of all Oscar nominations handed out from 1977 to 2019. This is very intriguing because I do find myself drawn to movies about mental illness. I do find that they tend to deliver better stories. That's not to say that films about horror or comedy can't have that spin but I think that there's a much more emotional connection to some of these films and you tend to see a better actor portrayal I I don't think that's the proper term but it seems like there's they put more of their heart and soul into a character that is difficult to latch onto. now in Screen Rant's article They gave the example of Silver Linings Playbook, the 2012 romantic drama starring Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence as two people with mental health disorders. That film grossed more than 11 times its budget at the box office and accomplished the landmark feat of earning Oscar nominations in all four acting categories. Well before that, Rain Man was the highest grossing movie of 1988 and won four Oscars including Best Picture and Best Actor for Dustin Hoffman. With the Joker film that came out, its immense critical and commercial success last year, it seems the trend at the foundation of the study will likely continue until the box office numbers start to trend in the other direction. So I think that's a very interesting study coming out of that area. And it, it's curious to see if it's a trend that will continue. Because while we've been making movies, and they've surveyed over 2,000 movies, there's plenty more movies out there about mental health and there will be more to come. So if those numbers continue to sway that way, I mean, they, they always find interesting ways to spin movies about mental health. So we shall see, if they do continue that study, how the numbers continue. Now, we have a brand new segment of what's in the letterbox. What's in the fucking box? I'm gonna try to be quick with this one because I've got about nine or 10 movies to discuss. First up, Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween. I gave it a 2 out of 5. Not as good as the first one. Still a little, it is a little predictable. I, it was not that great. Next up, First Man. That was the Damien Chazelle film. I think it was his first film, drama film, that wasn't tied to music. I gave it a 4 out of 5. This is about the Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. Great story. Great acting by Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy. Excellent film. Cujo. I gave Cujo a 3 out of 5. This film is from the 80s. I've never read the book. I The only story I knew about the book is, I believe, Stephen King doesn't remember writing it because he was hot up on drugs and alcohol. But this film is terrifying. And the actors in this film, they really sell it. There was a child actor that was like, I think he, they actually terrified him. They actually traumatized his kid. But this movie was excellent. I gave it a 3 out of 5 just because, you know, it's not perfect, it is a little dated, but it still holds up really well, and that's what was surprising about this older film. Next up, I reviewed a Canadian documentary called Sick Boy, um, and it's about the actual podcast called Sick Boy, and I think the host of the podcast has a debilitating disease, I cannot remember the name of it because I'm trying to do this off the cuff, but him and his two friends interview other people with different diseases and try to make more awareness about Illnesses, very interesting documentary, and it was a, it was very cool to see to see a podcast being covered in a documentary. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Next up, I watched a film called Attack the Block. This was John Boyega's, um, I believe it's his debut film, and I gave it a three and a half out of five stars. Not that scary, kind of funny. The characters were were likable, but it was a little dated for me. Next up, I watched The Devil All the Time. This is that Tom Holland, uh, Robert Pattinson film. Uh, I only gave it a three out of five, and I think I need to give it a rewatch because I'm pretty sure I was falling asleep during certain parts. I did watch it at like two in the morning. But it does seem like a very interesting story, and it's based off a book. So I don't, I can't give it a proper review today, but it's here on my list three out of five average review. Might get a higher review later on. I've got American Murder, The Family Next Door. This was a documentary and a very interesting documentary in that because it was filmed using social media, just social media videos and police camera footage. And it was, there was no actual camera work done aside from anything that was pulled from say news outlets, from Facebook videos, anything like that. So it was was a very interesting documentary and it felt like it was happening as we were watching it. They were able to figure out who the murderer was. And it was about a, um, a, a woman who mysteriously disappeared with her two kids. And the only person left that they had to question was the husband. And the story unravels from there. Next up, I watched a documentary called Spielberg. This was about the life and times of Steven Spielberg in film. Very interesting film. I gave it a 4 out of 5 stars, only because it was nostalgic as hell. It hit all the beats I wanted, and you got to see a lot of Stephen King's... Stephen King. Steven Spielberg's classic films on screen. And it was really cool to see that he used to hang out with guys like Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, and George Lucas. They all just hung out, played pool, drank together. Like They were literally up-and-coming directors, and they were all hanging out and helping each other out. It was It was cool to see. Finally, I saw... A million ways to die in the West. I gave this film a one and a half out of five. I thought that there were some interesting moments in this, but it was not really believable in the sense that you know it was set in the Wild West. There were some things like costumes and stuff, and jobs were, that were accurate. But of course, it's it's Seth MacFarlane, so it had a bit of a Family Guy humor to it. I think that Ted was a much better film than this. It was a good attempt, and there were some good good music, there were some good scenes, but all in all, it just does not hold up against Family Guy and Ted. That's it for my section of what's in the letterbox. Finally, I'm going to give my shoutouts. I've got three new shoutouts today for podcasts that you should be listening to. Uh, These are ones that I really enjoy and I listen to on a regular basis. First up, we've got Big Shiny Takes, another one from a good friend of mine, Eric Wickham, as well as two fellow classmate of his from Humber College, Jeremy Appel and Moreno Greco. The three of them host a podcast where they basically rip a new one into (laughs) columnists all around Canada that are basically, they don't know what they're talking about and they sound silly and it's very funny and it's honestly, it's fun to rip into people, into free speech, like columnists from The Sun, columnists from The National Post, Toronto Star, you name it, these guys will have read it and for giving their big shiny take on it. Next up, 90 Day Soiree. You may be surprised to know that I really do enjoy 90 Day Fiance. Ever since we moved back in with Sam's parents, um, we've been watching 90 Day Fiance every week. And this podcast hosted, one of the hosts is Brandon Farmahini who used to work for Rooster Teeth, started up his own podcast with a bunch of his friends and his wife to basically review every episode of 90 Day Fiance as it happens. And they just break it down, they discuss it. It's very interesting, it's very funny, and it's it's interesting to get their takes on the episode because there's a lot of things that I can relate to that me and Sam will laugh on the couch and, and watch it together, and it's nice to get a different perspective on it. And finally, my last shout-out for this week goes to the King's Cast. This is a podcast for Stephen King fans and readers, constant readers, and people who enjoy the shows and films. Now the two hosts will have they will review a different book and movie or TV if it has been adapted they'll review a different book in Stephen King's bibliography every week and they will have a guest on that will have basically come forward and chosen that story to talk about and they'll break it down and they'll compare how the book did to the film or television show adaptation one that I highly recommend as a great starter episode if you are a fan of Stephen King Watch The Dark Tower, or listen to The Dark Tower with Glenn Mazzara. Glenn Mazzara was actually the producer of what was uh, the unfinished Dark Tower television show. And he he breaks down The Dark Tower story and how he would have adapted it for television on Amazon. Unfortunately, the series never got picked up, but there's still hope in the near future that somebody will pick up and adapt The Dark Tower story into a proper high-budget television show. That's an episode that I want you guys to go and check out. He's got plenty of other great episodes, including interviews with guys like Mike Flanagan, who is the one who directed Dr. Sleep and Gerald's Game, and I believe he also did the Haunting of Hill House television show, and he talks about 1408 and how that inspired him to get into horror. So a couple of great episodes, and they get some excellent guests on their show. That is it for the podcast. I was able to jam this all. There was so much in here. But we got it done, boys. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Now, you can head over to my blog. My, my blog that I don't write on very often. wkey.wordpress.com Yeah, again, I say I occasionally will post... Feature length articles, news pieces, or general opinions on anything I find interesting. It's in the script. I don't really write that much. I tend to write more for the podcast, but you can go there and my podcast episodes show up there. So you can listen to my podcast there now too. com. Now, on th- to the socials. If you're not following me already, go check me out on Facebook.com. It's Facebook.com backslash the outbreak podcast. Give this page a like. Follow the page, that's where you'll find anything to do with the podcast or any other updates I decide to provide there. On Twitter, we are at Podcast Outbreak, as well as my personal Twitter, at Will Kee, K-E-E. Follow me on both of them, that would mean a lot. I would love to talk to you guys and I would love to chat. I would love you guys to also submit any questions that you want me to answer on the podcast. If you're curious about how the podcast is put together, how I choose stories, what got me into podcasting or if you just want to shoot the shit and ask me random questions I will answer whatever if you want to know what my shoe size is I'll even tell you I'm not going to tell you now but if you frame it in a question on Twitter or on Facebook wherever maybe I'll answer it on the next podcast just letting you know be sure to review drop a nice review maybe if you don't have time for a review drop a five star on Apple Podcasts Spotify Spotify Google Podcasts, Listen Notes, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to this podcast. We are hosted on podbean.com, but again, I do recommend that you go and search us out on any of those other listening platforms. That's the easiest way to listen to the Outbreak podcast. Again, I'm sorry I have to leave you. I've got to go tend to some things. I got to go rake some leaves. I've got to go do the dishes, you know, adult tasks. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a good night.